Let's bow our heads and our hearts. Father, we come and we thank you that you have given us a place where we can, in comfort and in the comfort of our own hearts, hear and apply the Word of God. Lord, I pray that you would open up our understanding that we might receive and understand those things that are written in this section of Exodus as we've come over so much territory already and we've seen how you've worked in the lives of the children of Israel, how you've raised up a deliverer named Moses and you brought them through the wilderness and are promising them a new land. And it's like, Lord, we've been there and we're experiencing these things with them. I pray, Father, that we would have a new and fresh appreciation for the things of the Spirit and a hunger for the Word of God. May you answer questions, Lord, that are on our hearts tonight. We ask your Spirit to be our teacher, our guide, and unfold these things to our lives and to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I have often thought about what it was like to be Moses. And just how, in many respects, easy his life was before he said yes to God. I mean, he had it made financially. He had it made politically. Next in line, Josephus says, to be one of the pharaohs of Egypt, since the pharaoh who was reigning had no sons, only had daughters, and since the daughter of Pharaoh drew him up out of the water, Moses would have been the pharaoh. Probably had his own chariot, nice one, shiny one, personalized plates. The whole arena was open to him. Yet there came a crisis in his life around 40 years of age. It was not a midlife crisis. It was a crisis of the Spirit of God moving in his heart. He wasn't satisfied with it. He saw that there was a people of God named the Hebrews. He knew he was one of them. And he starts identifying with them. And he said, Lord, use me. Now, it took a while for him to get to that point because he had several excuses why he shouldn't be used after he was humbled in the desert. But he said yes to God. And he became a leader over perhaps two and a half million men, women, and children. Slaves. Complaining slaves who often came against him and his leadership. When my wife and I moved from Southern California to New Mexico, I had absolutely no idea that God would do what he has done. I really had no idea. I figured, oh, I'll be out in New Mexico a couple years and Something happens great. If it doesn't, probably won't. I'll just move on. I didn't have pictures on my refrigerator where I just visualized this large facility or so many people and dreamt over it and confessed it. I had, I had no... In fact, I was stunned when so many people started coming. And when we got our first building that we rented after the theater over on Eubank, which is now a um, paramilitary supply store, And we put up all the chairs. My wife and I went over to one side of the building and we sat down on the floor and we just started weeping. We, I said, can you believe what God has done so far? There's like 350, 400 people coming. It is so stunning. I, don't, I can't believe it. And then when we moved into the building after that because we had outgrown that facility... It was now the third facility we had been in. And we figured that we started with two services thinking they'd both be half full because that's the amount of people that were in the other building. And the first service was already filled to capacity the first morning. And my wife came into the service and she saw it and, and under her breath she said, Lord, stop it. <laughs> what are we going to do? We don't know how to do this. We've never been trained how to do this. We never went to those church growth seminars. We never will either. But then I think of Moses. 
how he must have just, as he saw the children of Israel coming up out of Egypt, following him, he just thought, ugh. What am I going to do? Now this group of people who cried out for deliverance became a group of people that were difficult to lead because they were complainers. They complained. Every, I was reviewing Exodus this afternoon and I was just looking at almost every chapter. They, started compl they, they complained. As soon as they got to the Red Sea and they looked back and the Egyptian army was there, they turned back and they blamed it on Moses. They said, we told you to leave us alone. Actually, they didn't tell Moses to leave them alone. They cried, oh God, deliver us! And God answered their prayer. But now, we told you to leave us alone. It would be better to be slaves in Egypt than to die in the wilderness. Why didn't you leave us alone? Were there no graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to kill us? Moses said, chill. Actually, your Bible says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. I, I rephrase and paraphrase many scriptures because of the time in which we live. Chill out, man. Watch God work. And the Red Sea opened up and they went through. Then they came to a place called Mara, where the waters were bitter. And you can imagine two and a half million people out in the desert. They have no drinking water. They taste the water. It's bitter. It's poisonous. And so once again they blame Moses. It's so much like human nature to blame somebody else for our problems. And what if those problems were brought on by the Lord who is allowing you to go through a test? And that's exactly what had happened. They were at the waters of Mara where God had led them. And they start whining again. We don't have any water to drink, Moses. What's going to happen? We're going to die. We told you, leave us alone. And so the Lord showed Moses a stump, a piece of wood, and he threw it in the water, and the bitter water became sweet, and they drank. Then they marched from there to the wilderness of Sin, or Sin, S-I-N. And as they were out there, they started complaining again. There's no food. We remember being in Egypt. It was awesome. We had flesh pots and leeks and onions and garlics. And so bread fell from heaven. Miraculous stuff. Enough to make most people go, whoa, I'll never complain again. God has proved himself. All right. I mean, if he can bring water uh, that's bitter miraculously and, and bring bread from heaven, I trust him. But they left there. They went out toward Rephidim and they started complaining again. There's no water out here to drink, Moses. Now at this time, Moses gets really ticked, irritated. And he goes, God, what are you doing? This is a tough job. What can I do? They're crying out to me. I can't bring water in this place. God said, Moses, go over to that rock with your staff. Strike it. Water will come out. And water gushed out of the rock, and all of the people had water to drink. But as time went on, they came to Mount Sinai. Moses went up to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. He was a little too long. They thought that he'd, you know, you know go get God's facts and come right back down. But he was up there lingering. The people started getting restless. And they came to Aaron and they said, Moses, hey, the job was too tough for him. He split. We complained one too many times. He's out of here. He's not coming back. And so they persuaded Aaron to make a calf out of gold. Aaron presented it to him. And Aaron stated, this is the God that led you out of Egypt. Let's worship this golden calf. Then we read about how Moses came down in his anger. He smashed the tablets. God said, I'm not going with you. I'll send my angel. Moses intercedes. And now we get into the place where, as we read last week, God reveals himself once again and establishes the covenant with Israel. We've already read the first nine verses of chapter 34. And so we pick it up at verse 10. But again, just remind yourself of how the Lord 
reveals his name, or actually a description of his character, as one who is merciful and long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that's what God was just about to do. He's about to give them a fresh start. They'll get two new tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them. And God will establish His covenant again with them. But God describes His character. That's what a name is all about, by the way. It's a description of your character. Hallowed be thy name, Jesus said we are to pray. The idea behind that is the name of God, the name in ancient times, was the envelopment of a person's character. All that God is is to be reverenced and made hollow. Hallowed be your name, or most holy and reverenced is your name, O Lord. When I was growing up, I I used to get in trouble uh, quite a bit. I was the fourth and last on the totem pole in my family. I was the last kid. And all of the other brothers sort of made a name for themselves in sports, baseball, golf, and track, and valedictorian, and this and that. Brothers were both valedictorians. And so, you know, I had to compete. I had to make my name either famously or infamously. And I made my mark in my community, sometimes very infamously. And I remember my father saying, just don't forget that whatever you do, you're not doing it just as an individual, but you are reflecting your name and the character of your family in this community. I said, what do you mean? He said, I've been in this community in California a long time. And a name and a reputation has been established. And you have that name. And what you do will reflect your whole family. You as a Christian take on the name of your God. God describes his name here. You take the name Christian. The name of Christ is taken to you. You tell people, I'm a Christian. And what you do will reflect the family that you belong to. And so it's always important to remind yourself that what you do will reflect the God that you serve. There's a poem that I'm fond of because of its message. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. People hear what you say and they see what you do. So what is the gospel according to you? There are some people who by the way they live, I wish they wouldn't tell anyone that they're a Christian. Because it gives everybody else a bad name who claim to be Christians. It can put a taint upon the family of God. God declared his name. Moses and the children of Israel were to bear the character of that name. And God told Israel, I will raise you up, that you can be a testimony to all of the nations around you, that they might know that I am the Lord. And we pick that up in verse 10. He said, Behold, I make a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Now God wants to do a work through your life. God wants to show you awesome things. I think our problem is availability or the lack thereof. It's not your ability that God is looking for. It's your availability. God is looking at you saying, I want to do an awesome thing. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth. God wants to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are turned toward him or loyal to him. And God isn't saying, okay, I'm looking for all the PhDs. Where's all the PhDs? And the master students first... Obviously, they have more talent. I can use them. No, God, in fact, goes out of his way to choose the most unlikely people, which should give us all great confidence. Think of Israel. God didn't choose Israel because, hey, you just can't pass up a good deal. Look at Israel. They're just so awesome. They never complain. 
Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says, I didn't choose you or set my love upon you because you were greater or more a number than any other nation, but I just decided to love you. That's all. Is Israel a chosen nation? Oh, you betcha. Are you chosen by God? Yes. But God, just for some unfathomable reason, chose to set his love upon you. That should excite you. And God wants to do awesome things, exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think. Your life is to be God's canvas, where he can paint pictures and display you before this world. I'm going to do awesome things, God said. Now, what's interesting to me about verse 10 is that God had done already some pretty awesome things, and in comparison to what they will see in their near future, even entering the land, they had seen more exciting things in the past than they will see in the future. Yet God says, it's going to be so awesome what I will do with you and through you that the world will wake up and know that I've chosen you. Though I see this being fulfilled in their immediate future somewhat, I think its total fulfillment will be in the end times where Isaiah predicted in chapter 11 that he would regather. God said, I will regather the children of Israel from being scattered throughout all the world a second time, which we are seeing today, from all over the world. Moreover, in the Great Tribulation period, in the book of Revelation, there's some pretty awesome things that happen that make even the plagues in Egypt seem mild. And the signs and wonders seem pretty low-key in comparison. For instance, I think it's chapter 7. John in his vision sees a star fall from heaven and fall to the earth. And a key was given to that being. And this bottomless pit, the abyss, was opened up and the smoke of a great furnace went up and filled the sky and darkened the sky. And in this dark cloud were locusts having the sting of a scorpion. And they were sent to torment men upon the earth for five months. They were commanded not to eat anything green or destroy any vegetation but to torment men upon the earth so much that they would seek death during those five months but not be able to find it. And plagues are unleashed. And God even protects Israel in such a miraculous way that it can't even be compared to what God had done in their past. Chapter 12 of the book of Revelation says, And I saw in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, the moon was under her feet. She had a garland of 12 stars on her head. And she was with child, ready to deliver that child, to give birth. And it was a male child that was to rule the whole earth. And the dragon was ready to devour the child as soon as it was born. And as soon as it was born, it says that God drew the woman out into the wilderness and protected her there for three and a half years, speaking how God will protect Israel from the wrath of the nations for three and a half years during the tribulation period. Then, when Jesus comes back to the earth the second time, he will do it right before an incredible battle begins called the Battle of Armageddon. Jerusalem, half of it is destroyed. They gather together against Jerusalem in the Valley of Megiddo. They're about ready to swoop down. And Jesus Christ will come again as they're coming into Jerusalem, put his foot on the Mount of Olives, protect Israel, and just start his business all over again. So, though I see a fulfillment in the near future, I think it's completely fulfilled in the far future. And if you read it again, it makes sense. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And that would include what they had seen already as far as the plagues and the manna and the Red Sea opening and so forth. For it's an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Termite, the Jebusite. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. God says, don't make a covenant with them. Drive them out. Destroy them. It would help if you could ever visit the museums of the Middle East and see the kind of idolatrous behavior that was being practiced. You think, why would God tell these people to destroy the Canaanites? 
Couldn't you just make a little pact with them and a covenant with them? Why drive them out? Why destroy them? Their stories that come to us of these cultures are so grotesque. Venereal disease had spread throughout the Middle East. At this time it was everywhere because people were so sexually loose that sex had become a part of their worship service. When they would erect a city and they would dedicate the city, they would take a child, a baby, sometimes several babies that had just been born in that city, kill them, put them in a jar, and put the jar in a clay encasement at the gate of the city buried underneath the stone as they would dedicate the city to their gods. When they would subjugate a nation, take it captive. There are stories of the Assyrians who would take and cut off the ears, the lips, the noses of their victims and put huge piles of these appendages at the gates of their city. It was grotesque. And God says, I don't want you to make a covenant with them. Just drive them out. It's the land that I'm giving you. God had given them 400 years to repent. They didn't repent. And now judgment comes. Now later on, in the book of Joshua, as they're taking over the land, they take over the south, that Jericho is taken captive, Ai is taken captive, and as they march in toward the north, from the central region of Israel to the north, the kings of the area get ready to make war against the children of Israel under the command of Joshua. But there's a group of people called the Gibeonites who thought about what is happening. That, you know, I'm not going to fight with Israel because we heard what they did to Jericho and Ai. They'll kill us. And so the Gibeonites dressed up sort of in Halloween costumes, so to speak. They put old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins on their donkeys that had been ripped and mended, old sandals, torn up clothes, dust all over them, put moldy bread in their sacks, and marched just a few miles from Gibeon. And they told the children of Israel, We've come on a long journey. We've come to make peace, make a covenant with you. We've heard what God has done through you, and we want to be your friends. Please make a covenant. We don't belong to this land. We're from another land. But they were from Gibeon, just a little bit up north children of Israel made a covenant with them, but it says, but they did not inquire of the Lord. They didn't ask God what to do. And because of that, they made a terrible mistake. They made a covenant with the land, uh, with the people of Gibeon. Later on, they found out that they had been snookered into it. And so the men of Israel said, hey, let's kill these people. They lied to us. And Joshua said, no, a man's word is his word. We made a covenant with them. We have to keep it. And so they made them woodcutters, slaves in the land of Israel and in the tabernacle. So God says, no, that lest they become a snare in your midst, they're to destroy their altars, break down their pillars, and cut down their wooden images. These are the pillars and the images used to worship Baal and Ashtaroth, where they would meet on the high places and in the groves in very sensual and destructive worship. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now some of you have had trouble with that scripture. God is jealous. Oh, you betcha. God is jealous. You don't have to defend him for that. How am I going to explain this to people? You don't. When you love someone, if that person starts becoming enamored with somebody else, you better be jealous or I would doubt your love. Paul the Apostle said, I am jealous over you, 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 11, with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you as a chaste virgin to Jesus Christ. It's a godly jealousy. Sometimes a wife might say, oh, my husband is so wonderful. There, he's, there's not a jealous bone in his body. Uh-oh. There better be. If I saw somebody putting his arm around my wife and walking her out, I wouldn't take it lightly. I'd become enraged. God is jealous for a few things. God, first of all, is jealous for his glory, that he would get the glory. Isaiah chapter 54, I believe, tells us, God says, I will share my glory with no one else. Then God is jealous for affection of his people. God wants your worship. God doesn't want you to be committed to anything else above him. I am the Lord your God. You'll have no other gods before me. You'll only worship and serve me, the Lord said. 
then God also is jealous for his people. That is, when others come against God's people, God protects them. God is jealous for them, for their sake. God told the children of Israel, whoever touches you does what? Touches the apple of my eye. If you know what that's like, if you have contacts especially, you go out in a dust storm and a piece of dust goes, oh, you're going to protect it and cover it. It irritates you. So God says, whoever bugs you irritates me. I take it personally. God is jealous for his people. It's great serving the Lord. It's great to let the Lord be your defense. There's so many people that try to be their own attorneys. I'll defend myself. Or because somebody spreads a rumor about them, they feel like, oh, they've got to go and find all the people they've told the rumor to and defend themselves. It's not worth it. By now, there's probably too many people that have heard it. Better to just let God be your defense and walk in integrity, walk in truth. And God's a jealous God. Let him take care of it. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And notice this. And they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of his daughters for your sons. And his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make their sons play the harlot with their gods. An interesting metaphor is now used for people who would leave the Lord God and worship another God. He says, you're playing the harlot. Now, why would God say that? Because God sees the relationship with his people as one of intimacy. He wants all of you, just like a husband and a wife. In the book of Isaiah, the Lord said, I, the Lord, am your husband, O Israel. In the book of Hosea, God says, Hosea, go take a wife who's a harlot, marry her. But know this, the wife that you choose will leave you and she'll go out on the streets again and be a prostitute. And when she's a prostitute and she's running around with other guys and she's sleeping with other men, I want you to find her wherever she is and bring her back and marry her to yourself again. Because, Hosea, that's what I am doing with the entire nation of Israel. They have played the harlot. They have left that relationship with me. They've been cavorting after other gods. But I love them. And I want to bring them back. And I want to forgive them and establish my covenant with them again. Spiritual adultery is where the master passion of your life becomes something other than God. That's why Paul said, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. I've espoused you to one that I might present you as a chaste virgin unto Christ. You belong to him. You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. Kind of rubbing it in what happened with the golden calf. Then, verse 18, it seems like it's sort of disconnected from the rest of this chapter. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. And there's a list of uh, laws that they are given. Well, let's just read a few of it. The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. As I commanded you, in the appointed time, in the month of Abib, which is Nisan as well, but it was called Abib, and then later on it was called Nisan, the first uh, month of the year. In the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine, every male of the firstling among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. At the firstling of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb, And if you will not redeem him, you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. These are scriptures we have covered in the past. You shall observe the feast of weeks, which is Pentecost, of the first fruits of the wheat harvest, the feast of ingathering, which is tabernacles, toward the end of their year, in the year's end. Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go to appear before the Lord your God three times in one year. Now, it seems like throwing in these laws right after God says, I love you, I'm going to make a covenant with you, I'll drive out the inhabitants of the land, and on and on and on. Don't make a covenant with them. Don't play the harlot with them. God gives them a series of mixed laws. But remember... God told Moses at the burning bush, Moses, here is a sign that this is all me doing it. 
when you get to Mount Sinai eventually, you will serve me in that mountain. You're going to serve me there. And so now God is giving them directives of how they can serve him while they're at Mount Sinai. To me, that's an important lesson. The tabernacle and the law was not just something for the future. Now, Moses, I want you guys to serve me way down the line when you're ready for it. No. As soon as you get to Mount Sinai, I want you to start serving me. I'll reveal my law to you, but you serve me. It is important as Christians that as soon as we come to Christ, we make it our habit to serve the Lord in some capacity. We look for needs. We get involved. Otherwise, what will happen to you is what has happened to so many thousands of Christians throughout history and in our country and in our churches is they start becoming introverted. Instead of looking out for the needs, they start looking inward. Well, I, I can't serve the Lord. I've got this problem. I've got this issue first to resolve. And I want to be blessed. And I want more of this. And I need more of that. And the whole scope of Christianity becomes on themselves. So it's important to, as we train new believers to say, listen, now that you've come to Christ, tell others about him and start serving him in some capacity. God has given you a gift and a talent. Find out what it is. Get busy. But don't get too busy that you leave the dugout and go down on the field all the time. You need to sit and hear the word of God and be nourished and worship and so forth and so on. But then start getting busy and serve him. Serve the Lord now, Moses, on this mountain. And he defines the parameter of that service. But look at verse 19. All that open the womb are mine. I don't have a problem with that, do you? God's the creator. God has rights. You know, we're so quick to talk about rights. It's my right. Individual rights, human rights. Call the ACLU. They'll talk about rights. Hey, God has rights. God can do anything he wants to do. That's his right. And God can claim anyone he wants to claim. God says, everyone that opens the womb belongs to me. Parents, remember that. Those kids of yours in the cradle and in the bed at night that you pray for, they belong to God. No doubt you've dedicated them to God, and you should. Jesus was dedicated at the temple. Samuel was dedicated by Hannah. And she said, the Lord has lent this child to me. I dedicate him back to the Lord. He's yours, God. That puts us in a very heavy position. A very responsible position. As Charles Spurgeon says, before your child reaches seven, teach him all the way to heaven. I hope as parents you have led or are leading your children to a relationship with Jesus Christ. They belong to him. God has lent that child to you that you might teach that child about the things of God. And we're responsible as parents. When we get up in the morning, we put him down at night. When we leave, when we come in, to talk to him about the things of God. And remind them that God loves them and that God wants to control and rule their lives. They're mine, God says. Uh, look at verse 24 once again now. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither, and I like this fray, I like this part of the verse, neither will any man covet your land when you go to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. Isn't that awesome? Now, when you leave your land, when you leave your city, and you have to travel to Jerusalem, which is many miles, many days, sometimes many weeks away, you have to leave your family, your flocks, your gardens, and you're going to leave them very vulnerable. But because you're going to serve me, I'll take care of you. That's a scriptural principle. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, where you're going to sleep, what clothes you're going to wear. These are the things the heathen seek after. Your Father in heaven knows you need all these things. God says, you seek after me, you keep me first, I'll cover your bases. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. 1 Samuel chapter 2 or 2 Samuel 2, I forget which, God says, them that honor me, I will honor. Proverbs 16, when a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies shall be at peace with him. God will cover your tracks. 
our problem is we reverse God's order. We start seeking not first the kingdom of God. We start seeking first what I'm going to wear, what I'm going to drink, what I'm going to do this, I've got to do that. And then, God, if I have any time left over, don't worry. I'll be back. No, seek first the kingdom of God. His will, His righteousness, being a representative of His kingdom, His glory. God will take care of the... Trust Him in that. Try Him in that. We say, I'm going to put God first. He's going to rule my life. I've got a lot of plans coming up, a lot of things in my life. I don't know where they're going to come from, how God will provide. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you freely as well. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifices with leaven, nor the sacrifice of the feast of Passover be left until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. We've covered that at length in previous study. The Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. Difficult to imagine what that was like, huh? Now, there have been times in the past where I fasted, but I believe me, I've never fasted this long. I heard of a man in the South who decided to fast. He had gotten over 40 days. He was getting to a very dangerous spot. And he said, I'm not going to eat any food till I hear from God. He heard from God. He's in heaven now. I guess God called him home. His body couldn't take it. Now, what I have read about fasting is that at first when a person begins a fast, he's very, very hungry. And after a few days, uh, after several days, the hunger subsides, enabling the person to go for a long period of time not feeling any hunger at all. I don't know this by experience, believe me. I only know it by reading. I've gone a few days, and then it's like I'm dreaming Big Macs. I'm dreaming malts. I mean, it's just, I, I gotta, I, I'll run, I'll, I'll hot-foot it somewhere. But after a period of several days, then when the hunger comes back the second time, it is an indication that the body is starving to death, and if it doesn't get nutrition soon, it will, because it's been feeding on itself, it will just die. The person will die. So when Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he says he was in the wilderness and he was hungry. Meaning he was close to star starvation, starving to death. He was at that second point where the starvation was attacking him. That's when Satan came to him and says, Hey, you're the Son of God. Command these stones to be made bread. Moses, for 40 days and 40 nights, it says, He wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the ten words, literally, or the ten commandments. Now it was so, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, the skin of his face Shown, they were afraid to come near. Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. What an awesome experience. What an awesome thing to see. Remember, he said, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, no, you can only see the afterglow. I'll hide you in the rock and I'll pass by and you'll be able to see, as the Jews say, the afterglow of God. Even seeing that, perhaps the radiation, I don't know, but he's just glowing. He's like an alien coming down and people have never seen this before. Moses didn't know that his face was shining. There's no mirrors around. But they could tell, this man's different. His face is shining. Now, I don't want to make too much of this in spiritual analogy, but it is true. When you commune with God, 
When you spend time in His presence, it will be evident. It will be evident. Remember the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts chapter 4? Peter, John, the disciples are brought before the Jewish elders. They notice that these are unlearned and ignorant men, but they knew that they had been with Jesus. How did they know that? It was obvious. In the way they handled situations, in the way they handled the trial. It's evident when a person walks with God and is in communion with God, that person's been in the presence of God. You don't have to advertise. You don't have to say, you know, I've been praying for five hours today. You don't have to wear a badge. It will be evident. Your life will be evident. They saw, ooh, this guy's face is shining. He's been with God. The Sanhedrin saw that they were with Jesus. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that Moses put a veil on his face because this shining, this glory, was departing. The reason he put a veil on his face isn't to, because he didn't want them to wear, you know, have to, not have to wear sunglasses. It was too bright. But being in the presence of God when he would leave, that face would start to dim out. And Paul the Apostle says Moses put a veil on his face because the glory was departing, which speaks of the law, that the law was going to depart and would no longer rule over us, but God would establish a new covenant under Jesus Christ. The old law is fading away. It's faded away. It's brought us to Christ. It's our schoolmaster so that we no longer need the law. We've been driven to Christ now, and the old law has passed away. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord, verse 34, to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. Whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, the skin of Moses' face shone. Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him, speak with God. I heard of a story in, uh, in India. A Hindu man went up to a Christian missionary, and he was a little bit angry. He said, uh, why is it that all of these people who follow Christ, their faces are glowing? What do you put on your face? What cosmetic are you using? He said, sir, I don't know what you're talking about. Our faces, we don't put anything on our faces. He goes, oh, don't tell me any lies. I've noticed it in Bombay. I've noticed it in Agra and all over India. I've seen these Christians. And then the man realized, you know, it's not what he's seeing on the outside. It's what's coming out from the inside that's apparent. I had a wild thing happen. It's the only time it ever happened to me. It really took me off guard when I was in San Bernardino, California, and I was driving from the hospital to my house where I was living. I came into my living room, took off my medical smock, was getting all ready for my evening meal of rice or whatever single meal I was cooking. I got a knock on the door. And it was one of the... Um, uh, one of the interns or one of the orderlies in the hospital said, can I come in and speak with you for a minute? I said, sure. He said, I noticed sometimes at the hospital, and I've noticed even when you drove home today, he said, your face was glowing. No joke. I looked at him like... You know, I didn't know if this was some kind of a joke or a scam or what. I said, excuse me? He said, no, I'm serious. As you were driving in, you had a smile on your face and your face looked like it was glowing. What is it with you anyway? And I could only figure out that God allowed him to see something and he wanted me to share the gospel with this guy. So I invited him that evening for supper and was able to lead him to Christ. Our countenance tells a lot. That doesn't mean you have to paste on a little fake smile all the time. That will do more damage, I think. Just be real. Be authentic. Authentic joy is infectious as people observe your life. Oh, great. Seven minutes to finish another chapter. Moses gathered the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day is a holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. We've covered the Sabbath in some length. You shall kindle no fire throughout your habitations on the Sabbath day. Now this is wild. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart... 
Oh, you know, I, I wish radio and television ministries would make this their motto. I wish they'd read this part. This is an offering being taken. And notice how it's prefaced. Moses doesn't say, or God doesn't say, I'm up here in heaven and we're short this month. <laughs> really got to help me out. I've got angels to commission. We're running low on the funds. And if you could help this one time, please. Otherwise, my ministry on earth will go down the tubes if you don't help. God wants you to give, not out of a guilty conscience, but out of a hilarious heart. Second Corinthians says, God loves a cheerful giver. Greek word, hilaros, where we get the word hilarious. That's how you're to give to God. People say, give till it hurts. No, listen, if it hurts that much, keep it. <laughs> give because it's a joy to give to God's work. I want, I'm interested in investing in eternal things for the kingdom of God because when I get to heaven, it'll pay eternal dividends. That's the way to look at it. I, it irks me when people go out of their way to put God on the spot. Now, I do believe in giving to ministries. But I will research the ministries to find out if they're worthy of my money. Find out how they spend their money. I'm on the board of several mission organizations, and I know how they spend their money. Every dime of it, every penny over it. I look at their budgets. I see how they spend it. I'd be happy to let you know of some worthy mission organizations, but be careful. And... As soon as people start pressuring you, listen, we really can use it. You've got to give. Then just back off. On the other hand, I think that we should be sensitive when God is doing a great work and we see fruit in that work to be quick, to get behind and say, I'd love to stand financially with you in the work. I'd really love to be a part of this. And as they share their needs with you, that's one thing. In fact, I think they should share their needs with you. A policy that we have here at the Church for Missionaries is, is full information, no solicitation. Tell the people where you're going, what you're doing, what you need. And then step back and let God move on their hearts. Tell them your needs, but then, hey God, it's your work. If I don't get the finances, I won't do it. I get the finances, I will. And you can see if God guides. As Chuck Smith often says, when God guides, God provides. So whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet, yard, fine linen, thread, goat's hair, ramskin, dyed red, badger skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, for the sweet incense, onyx stones, stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Now you might wonder, wait a minute, these guys are a bunch of slaves. Where'd they get all this stuff? Well, remember, God says when you leave Egypt in Exodus chapter uh, 1 of the... Uh, uh, I, I can't remember the chapter or verse, but previously. God says, when you leave, you will leave with great wealth. You will spoil the Egyptians. Now, it got to be, with all the plagues on Egypt, the Egyptians wanted to get rid of these characters. Please, leave. Take anything you want that's mine. Just get out of here. Get out of town. There's, get out of Dodge. There's not room enough for both of us in this town. Split. And they spoiled the Egyptians willingly. They took it with them. Now, God says, take an offering. And all who are skillful among you shall come and make all that the Lord had commanded, the tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its clasps. And I'm not going to read all the things down to the rest of the verses because it's stuff we've already read in the past. God tells them the second time, all the things I told you before, for the tabernacle, the furnishings, and all the rooms, do it. And then in verse 20, all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all of its service and for all of the holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart and brought their earrings, nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold, that is, every man who offered an offering of gold unto the Lord. You see, this was not their tithes. 
That was already taken care of. God commanded them to take a tithe. No option. But this was a, an offering that was voluntary. Just whatever's on your heart besides your tithe. If you want to give to this, give. The wild thing is you'll read next chapter. Moses had to say, you're giving too much. Don't give any more. First time in record I've ever heard of that happening. Where they actually had to restrain the people from giving. But you see, when it is voluntary, then it does, it does come from the heart. People have wondered with amazement as they visited our church. I had somebody from the Billy Graham Association who had visited our church. I was just sitting out in the um, congregation, and I saw him at a board meeting recently in California. He said, I was awestruck when I noticed that you have these boxes around the room and that you just tell people, hey, it's there for your tithes and offerings. Give as the Lord would lay on your heart. He said, I've never seen that before. How do you do it? I said, we don't. It's his ministry. He does it. They're adults. They're responsible. They're big enough. They're big boys and girls. God can lay it upon their hearts. And then there's no pressure. It's there all the time. No pressure. It's between you and God. And I don't look at the tithes and say, okay, let's see what they give. Let me find, find out the amount that they give here. I don't know what you give, and I don't care to know what you give. That's between you and God. I want to just have the freedom to minister to you as a shepherd and feed you the Word of God without caring or knowing what you give or don't give. That's between you and God. It's none of my business. And I give unto the Lord as the Lord lays it on my heart. So they gave willingly. They gave freely, without fanfare, without pressure. And I believe that's how God wants us to give. I don't think God likes the kind of tactics where somebody says, okay, who tonight will give $1,000? Stand up. And then people, ooh, as he stands up, and they notice this person giving. Commitment to make $1,000. Jesus said, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give in secret, that your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. That's the way I think God likes it, in simplicity. Jesus said, verily I say unto you, they have their reward. I can't imagine a worse scene, expecting to get to heaven, thinking, man, I've, I've done a lot for God. I've, uh, I've given a lot to God's kingdom. You stand up there. Hey, God, I want my reward. Remember the $1,000 I gave that night? Well, you got your reward. They all noticed you. They thought you were awesome. They thought you were something special. And you got all the adulation of men. Jesus said they have their reward already. I'd rather do it in secret and let God reward me openly, wouldn't you? God wants it willingly. God said, take the offering that way. They did it. Verse 26, all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair. So their offerings were the talents and the gifts and the abilities that they had. It wasn't just all gold and silver. There's more than one way to give. They didn't have any currency. They had to barter. Remember, they were slaves. They only had materials. And then in verse 30, Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God and wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. He has put in his heart the ability to teach in him and in Aholiab, the son of Ahisimach, the tribe of Dan. And he has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen of the weaver. Those who do every work and those who design artistic works. Now we'll pick up the next chapter next week and we'll finish the book next time we meet. Because Basically, there's a lot of repetition, and it just simply repeats what God has already commanded. It says what God commanded, they did. When he said build this, they built that. And we'll finish off the book of Exodus next time. I don't know how many weeks this has taken, quite a few. But by now, if you've continued with us, you should have a thorough grasp of the exodus of the children of Israel from being slaves in Egypt through the wilderness, at least through this part, up to Mount Sinai, and then the commission onward. We ended with Bezalel, 
one of my favorite characters in this part of the Old Testament because he was an artist. And the church for too long has looked down on artistic expressions to get the gospel out. And I think it's time to revive it. I like it when people have a propensity toward the arts in music or in painting or in drama, and they dedicate their lives to get the gospel out through that medium. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. God says, I've gifted him. You know that God has given you gifts and talents? Some of you think, well, what can I do for the Lord? I mean, I can sew. Sew? <laughs> There's people who need that gift in their lives. All I can do is cook. All I can do is work hard and, and, and build or lay foundations or do plumbing. There's lots of people that you can minister to with that. You could even go overseas with those skills. There are many places around the world that could use those skills. Some of you are artists, and God is laying on your heart that He wants to get you busy to do His work. Obey Him in those arenas. God is looking for people to use. His eyes go to and fro throughout the earth. He's looking for people like Isaiah who will say, Over here, God, don't pass me up. I'm available. And I'm actively available. Are you actively available? See, it's one thing to be actively available. And it's another thing to be passively available. There's people who say, well, look, God has my number. If he wants me, he can come and get me. I'm hanging out over here. I'm in the Bahamas. <laughs> Not that God doesn't need people in the Bahamas. There's people who need the gospel there as well. Then there are those who are active. They're just looking for ways to get involved, to be busy, and to serve. Those are the kind of people that God uses quickly. Those are the kind of people that I look for. Those are the kind of people that eventually find their way on staff or in some capacity. They're always busy looking in to do anything, just wanting to serve. And then it's evident as they're raised up that God has given them talents and gifts of the Spirit. And it's like, wow, look at that. It's, it's remarkable to see what God's doing through that person's life. It's exciting. Let's pray. Father, what a joy, what a privilege it is to serve the living and true God. And what a work you want to do in our lives. What a work you want to do in the houses next door, in our neighborhood, and on our block, and in our schools, and with people we work with. And Lord, there's so many creative ways that you can get your gospel out, and sometimes we limit you thinking it's only one little way. And I pray that you'd expand our visions and our horizons, that we would be your instruments in your vessels to represent you and to, with great joy, get the gospel out. Lord, may it be evident that we've been in the presence of Jesus as we live in his presence throughout the week, not just checking in for an office visit once a week. I pray that we'd live in the continued presence of our Savior, giving thanks always, praying without ceasing, rejoicing evermore. Make those marks of our life, Lord. Father, as we close this service. My heart also goes out to those who have come. They've been invited by friends. Their friend may have just said, come to Calvary Chapel. And out of curiosity or out of politeness, they are here tonight in our midst. And they notice the life, the spiritual life, the contentment, that is here, the fullness of life, and yet their own hearts are a bit empty, lacking peace. And Lord, we believe that you haven't brought them here by accident, but that you have a divine appointment with them. You want to do an awesome thing in their life and then through their life. And so, Father, we pray for those that you are touching right now that they would respond to the call of the gospel. As you're sitting contemplatively this evening, wherever you're at, there are people all around you who are praying, if you haven't made a decision to know Christ, that you'd make it tonight. And in a friendly setting, a setting of friends, of people who love you, if God is touching your heart and you want to make peace with Him tonight, you want to know that your sins are forgiven, you want to be born again, as Jesus said. 
then you must come to him and receive him as your Savior. And there's no better time than now. I encourage you, I implore you, if you don't know the Savior, that tonight you would release your life into his hands. You'd commit your ways and commit your life to him. At the same time, as there's a real God, there's a real devil who's saying, no, don't do this. Uh, people warned you about this. Don't do anything. Don't, don't do anything rash. It's because the devil doesn't want you to defect. But God wants to save you tonight, wash you tonight. And if you'd like to give your life to Jesus Christ tonight, you want to experience forgiveness and peace, purpose, meaning, eternal life, indicate that right now by raising your hand up. I'll pray for you before we close this service. Just raise it up right now. Say, Skip, here's my hand. I want you to pray for me. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. Keep it up in the air. God bless you. Over to my left, sir. Anybody else? You, sir, up front. God bless you. Over to the left again. See your hand. Anyone else? Is God speaking? Then respond. Respond to Him. Raise your hand up. Say, yeah. Tonight's the night. I'll give my life to Jesus. To my right, toward the back. I see your hand. There. With your hands up in the air, I want you just to ask the Lord Jesus Christ into your life to take over. I want you to give Him the pink slip right now. Ownership. Wherever you're sitting, either out loud or in your heart, 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 either out loud or in your heart.